Our scripture reading this evening comes from Psalm 30. You can find it on page 461 in your pew Bible. If you would please stand for the reading of God's holy word. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for this truth and ask, O Lord, that you would aid us in our understanding, that we might rightfully do as David did, praise you, and yet rightfully understand how powerful you and your word are. Divide our hearts, O God, that we might experience the same truth that David does, mercy, deliverance, and healing. All for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 30, it's a, it's a very unique psalm, the psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving. But I think if you're listening, it might be hard to answer that question. How is this a song of praise? How are we to be thankful when we read the content and the circumstances that David is in fact outlining? What's interesting, even the title suggests it. It's a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. It's not a song of David in which it's meant to be sung or prayed only by David. It's meant to be done so publicly. And he says it's at the dedication of the temple. The Hebrew word there is house. Whether or not this means his his personal residence, uh, a palace, or in fact, the temple that has not yet been built. We're not sure, but I don't think that's the point. I think what David is saying here in the very opening line is simply, what God has done is worthy of praise. Not only my praise, but all of God's people. And so when we ask that question, how is this a song or a psalm of praise? What are its content that aid us in praising God? Instead of saying three points, I want you to see three themes. 
This is not so much a linear psalm as it is a, imagine it to be a journal entry, and you'll see why. So what are the three themes or three key words, if you will, that can come out? The first is sin, and we'll look at it. The second is salvation. And lastly, song. When we read Psalm 30, like I said, it's not David giving you a linear, logical understanding of the gospel and of his relationship with God the Father. In fact, actually what he is detailing or outlining, or perhaps we say journaling, is this is what my experience is like. Here is some information, and then he gives you a little bit of reflection. And then he gives you a little bit more information, and then a little bit more reflection. I would perhaps guess that's what your journal entries look like if you, in fact, journal. You're not always trying to come up with the most clever or prettiest of lines. It's just very honest. And it's not always in a straight thought or single line. And that's really what David is doing here. And so when we begin this psalm, he's singing. We will get to his song and what that means. But did you catch what he's singing about? Look in verses 1 and 2. You can see it more in 3 as well. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. He's got a lot of problems going on. This is not a a green pasture moment. He is very much undergoing challenge. There perhaps is a possibility of enemies preparing to rejoice over his downfall, or even worse, his death. You might even read it and say he's extremely ill, perhaps almost to the point of death. When you look at what David is saying, things are not good. They're not glorious and great. They're very much problematic. Yet when we read these problems, we have no idea why. When he's telling you in these first three verses what problems he's enduring, you have no clue as to why. What are those circumstances? How do we seek such clarity? I think the reason that you don't get that clarity is because those problems are, in fact, a symptom of a greater problem, and that is sin. Now, you read Psalm 30, and you're wondering, I didn't see sin. That word didn't show up. Where is it? Look in verse 6. What do we see here central to David's reflection? As for me, I said in my prosperity... I shall never be moved. He forgot. He forgot God. In that little verse, he refers to himself four times. In verse 6 alone, it's me, 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 me. And David has forgotten who God is. And in fact, what is he saying? Life is great. It's good. Family life, great. Bank accounts, wonderful. Retirement set up. My house is in order. I'm young. I'm healthy. I'm beautiful. Life is good. And the future looks really good to the point that he says what? I shall never be moved. Do you remember, perhaps you probably think of that movie, but 
in the mid-90s that the Titanic, you remember some of its history, don't you? It's that beautiful ship. You remember what the designer said, the architect. This ship is so large, it's so strong, what? God himself could not sink it. You know, the movie's not going to tell you this information. There's a little history that happens as the Titanic is in the water. You, you know the story, right? I'm not ruining this movie for you, uh, or perhaps I am, and I'm, I apologize. It's a big boat, it's an iceberg, and it goes down. Uh, that's really the essentials of the Titanic. But what happens when they're on the Titanic? They receive six different radio communications. Five of them are saying, watch out. There are icebergs in the water. And yet the boat does not respond. Five different times. And on the sixth one, they respond. The PG version, be quiet. I'm busy here. And 30 minutes later, the boat is under water. This ship that could not be sunk by even God himself, the unmovable, the unbreakable ship, was so quickly destroyed by ice. David says, I'm the king. You cannot move me. You cannot dethrone me. You cannot change my future or my success. Look at all of what I have. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. It's ironic, isn't it? Just three Psalms earlier, this is the same man who has confessed, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And yet here he is forgotten. Who is God? What is God doing? David's forgotten those truths that you can read about in 2 Samuel 5. That David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Or in fact, another truth that David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that the Lord God gave David victory everywhere he went. These truths are fleeting. He is totally forgotten. It's about me, me, me. And David has forgotten who made him king. He has forgotten who has granted him success, who has given him peace, who has in fact given him prosperity. He forgot where he came from. Perhaps you're remembering that passage that Moses, in fact, tells the people of God as they are entering into the promised land. You remember, people of God, you were just enslaved by Egypt, and it was God who brought you out. It is God who brought you through the wilderness. It is God who brings you into the wilderness or into the promised land. And what does Moses tell them as they're entering into the promised land? Do not forget. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. He says, do not forget. Beware that you do not forget who it is that has done these things in your midst. It's a pattern since the garden, isn't it? That God says, this is what I want for you, and this is what I command of you. Do not forget. And yet we always look into ourselves and say, I can do this. I shall not be moved. Look at my success. Perhaps you think of Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, he looks out on the city. He says, look at how grand and glorious this is. Look at what I have done. And it is the Lord who immediately shuts him up. David is saying, look at me. I have done all of these things. I shall not be moved. You recognize that David has forgotten some very important things, hasn't he? He has forgotten who has granted him victory in battle. He has forgotten who provided all of these things, who has given him such success. But do you know what he's forgotten that's even greater than that? He tells you in verse 7. Look at what we see. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. The Hebrew word there is actually far more intense. It's David saying, I wasn't dismayed, I was terrified. I was terrified when God, when you hid yourself from me, when I no longer had your presence, when I didn't have your face, I was terrified. David had forgotten what is most important, the presence of God, being before the Lord, and it terrifies him. Why is David enduring so many problems? Sin. He had forgotten who it is that had done such great things for him. And so God removes himself ever so slightly. And David is terrified. Sin's not the only theme in this psalm. What about salvation? You can see it almost everywhere, can't you? It shows up in verse one. There's this picture of deliverance. There's a sense of deliverance when David says, oh Lord, you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. God has stopped and he's prevented the enemies of overtaking David. Even though he, David that is, has forgotten that God is the one who gives him success. And God has prevented such rejoicing over David. God has delivered David from illness. David says, I've been healed. I've been restored. Death would not overtake me. But you can see that greater than his health and greater than the uh, the battles in which he wins or needs to win, what he sees is a change of status. Did you catch that theme throughout when David is saying, I was mourning, I was weeping, and God, you turned it into joy. You turned it into gladness. And Presbyterians, David said, he turned it into dancing. This is the experience of David. He is overwhelmed with the deliverance, with the salvation of God that he cannot control himself. He is dancing. He is glad. He, is, he has life. 
and he is overwhelmed by it. He begins with a picture of worship. But what I want you to understand is why was David in these situations? Yes, we said sin, but why such calamity? Why was he in such need, in fact, of deliverance? It's because God put him there. And that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Why did such bad things happen to David in Psalm 30? Because God did it. God positioned David to experience suffering, struggle. You get it in verse 1, the drawn me up. It's a a picture of a, a bucket going way down deep into the well to draw him out. You can see it again uh, in verse three or two and three. You've healed me. You've restored my life from the pit. But how do we know that that is David's understanding? God has done this to me because we have verse five. And what does David say? For his anger is but for a moment and his favor for a lifetime. David is recognizing it is the Lord who has positioned him here. He is looking back as to what has happened. Why has it happened? And he attributes it to who? Not just luck, not just circumstance. He attributes it to the fact that God has actively done this to me. God has put me here. God has positioned me to experience such challenge. But why? Because God loves because God loves him. Now, you're wondering how. What does love have to do with that? Perhaps we should make a a pastoral comment. What we are not saying, what David is not saying, is that every bit of your suffering is in fact due to your sin. That's the question, isn't it? When I'm hurting, when bad things are happening, how do I know if it's my sin or not? I don't know. Perhaps a perhaps a theme of way in which you can think about it. One pastor has suggested when you find yourself in a tight place that you are enduring enduring suffering if the first thought that you have is a specific sin maybe God is getting your attention. That is not the gospel. That is not divine truth, but perhaps helpful. We don't know exactly when it is related to our sin or when it's not. But David seems to because he's enduring it and he recognizes, oh no, I have forgotten God. God has done this to me. He has demonstrated a moment of anger because of my behavior, because of my decisions. God is humbling me. He is getting my attention. He wants me to see him. He wants me to know him. And that's what he's saying in verse seven. What is it that offers to me stability? What what is it that offers me firmness, a foundation? It's the favor of God. That's what he tells you in verse seven. I stand strong. I stand firm because of God and his favor to me. God has humbled him because David has forgotten. God has demonstrated, no, David, you did not do any of these things. I did that. For you. I was the one who brought you out. I was the one who anointed you. I was the one who throned you. I was the one who made the covenant. I was the one who kept it. I'm the one who's doing all of these things. 
And so David reflects and he says, by your favor. It's that, it's that picture that says you're one of God's children. You experience the favor of God. You're in the family of God. If you were with us many months ago, I, I don't even remember the exact text I was preaching on. I was telling you about a family member of mine who, uh, who was fostering a little boy who was struggling, had no idea what to do in school, did not know whose name he was supposed to write on his papers. He was unsure. The good news is he has been adopted. I have the video. It's the most overwhelming picture. What is it like to be a Rogers? And it's the largest smile. And he's jumping up. Why? Because he has just experienced the unbountiful favor of a family. He knows who he is. He knows the name he's supposed to write on his paper. That's what David is saying here. When you're a child of God, you experience the favor of God. You know who you are. You know whose you are. And so it allows for David to write very honest words. You see, he has not been to any kind of school of Southern mannerisms. When people say to David, how are you doing? He does not answer, I'm fine. He answers very honestly, doesn't he? He answers very intensely, very passionately, because he's, well, he's horrible. People are trying to kill him. They're singing praises about killing him. He is sick and he's going to die. I'm not doing fine. I'm horrible. And yet I recognize what I have is the favor of God. And so he, he gives us a prayer of absolute passion, absolute emotion. And isn't that wonderful? I think it was last week. I'll be corrected perhaps this week if I'm wrong. But the, the pastoral interns and I, were, we were having a conversation about what about the Lord's Prayer and why don't we recite that every week? And one of the reasons I had said is, well, you don't want to pray the same things without meaning it. Jesus is very clear what happened or what it means to the Father when you pray rote prayers and you don't mean them. That's what David is demonstrating here. You're not looking at this for the model of prayer that says, this is what I want to pray every morning. What David is giving you is a very emotional, intense response because what he is saying is, it's not about saying the right things. If you think that you can pray the right words and God will answer because that was the right password, it's never going to work. And so David is giving you a picture of an honest prayer that says, this is my life and this is my God. He's very passionate about it. In fact, if you read it, perhaps you're asking the question, is David arguing with God? What do you see in verse 9? Or verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? He's giving a rationale. Lord, I need your mercy. I need you to save me, and here's why. Do you pray that way? Do you ever pray and ask of the Lord and give to him a rationale? God, I need this, and here's why. Perhaps it's a testing in our prayers. If we're too embarrassed to tell the Lord why we need something, maybe we don't need to pray for it. 
But David is saying, Lord, you have told me, you have called me. If I die, I can't do what you have told me to do. I can't do what you've called me to do. I can't lead the people. I can't lead them in worship. I can't lead the, the kingdom. What about the throne? Lord, I need your help. I need you to save me. And here is why. Some will read this verse and they'll argue, David is questioning whether or not he's a child of God. And they're basing that off of his language there when he says, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? The Hebrew word for pit there means something a little bit different than what you read in verses one and two. They, they say, David, he's questioning his salvation. I don't think that at all what David is questioning. I don't think David's wondering if he's a child of God or not. I think David's being honest about what it's like in the real world. What do you do with sin? How do we understand life? in this fallen world. It's, it's putting teeth to what Paul's going to tell you in Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a judicial statement, that you are justified by faith in Christ alone. If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. It is not an experiential statement. It is not an experiential statement. When you and I sin, at times we struggle, how does God feel about me? How does he think about me now? And David is wrestling here. I have sinned. I have done what is wrong in the sight of God. How does God feel about me? What does he think? Has he, well, has he begun to lose love of me? Does he not love me anymore? You see, there are some who will tell you that, won't they? God loves you the way that you are. It doesn't matter what you do. That's not true, friends. That's not true in the least bit. God hates sin. He hates all sin. He hates the sin of unbelievers, and he hates the sin of believers. The difference is who makes atonement for that sin. And what David is saying, and maybe you remember that story in 2 Samuel 12. That's when David is confronted by Nathan. He is, well, he's killed Uriah. Why did he kill Uriah? Because he cheated with Bathsheba. He's caught up in all kinds of sin, and Nathan comes and uses a little parable with him. And do you remember what Nathan tells David when David says, well, we should kill that guy? And Nathan says, that's you. Nathan tells him, what you have done is evil. In the sight of God. David hasn't lost his status as a child of God, but he, in some sense, has lost his perception. There's no true sense that you lose the love of God, but when you and I sin, we can lose our perception of the love of God. David's not going to die for that sin. He was justified. Nathan tells him that. You will not die. But there's a sense in which, when you read Psalm 51, what is David saying? I've lost the joy of my salvation. Restore it to me, O Lord. And so what we get is a real taste of sin. But David says there's deliverance and there's salvation. There's mercy in God, our Father. And so lastly, our theme, our key word, it's song, it's sing. David says, sing, sing to the Lord. I will extol you. I will sing your praise is how he finishes. 
We sing for the very reason that David has already said. David is singing because he was disciplined by God, because he received favor from God. That is what prompted him to sing, because he understands that picture that we'll get in Hebrews 12, that, the, that God disciplines his children whom he loves. And you're asking yourself, well, how is David to understand the love of God in Psalm 30? David tells you, the anger of God is only for a moment, but it is the lifetime of grace and favor that you, as a child of God, receive. It's a continuing favor of God that you are provided. It's that Hebrew word hesed that shows up in the Psalter, that God is steadfast in his mercy to his children. And David's point is, my near-death experience, it's not a, it's not a cause to reject God. It's, it's a reason for why I should praise God. He got my attention. I had fallen away, and the Lord sought after me to bring me back. He has restored to me life. David understands the discipline of God is that of love. It's the clearest picture, isn't it, of the cross? That we understand love when we look at the cross. God at the cross, he, what does he do? He buys the right to love you by sending his own son to die in your place. Psalm 30, it's a, well, it's a picture of a son who cries out for help and is healed. But there is a day that's going to come. And there's going to be another son who cries out for help. And he doesn't receive healing. He receives hell. And it's so that this son, the adopted son of David, gets to receive healing because the begotten son of God took hell for him. And that's what David is saying. If you want to understand a great song to sing, you look in the mirror as the redeemed and you say, look at what my God has done on my behalf. Not ever should we say, I will never be moved. Look at my prosperity. David says, no, you look at Christ and you see what he has done for you and it makes you sing. You sing uncontrollably. You sing loudly. You sing over and over and over again. You sing with passion and emotion because you were lost and now you were found. You were dead and now you were made alive. And so David is saying, I. I had problems in my life, and the Lord got my attention. I prayed, and he made provision for me. And so as a sinner, I sing. I sing because I've been saved, and the Bible calls that worship. That's what we do. We worship God because of what he has done. And that's really what's right here, isn't it? It's a meal. It's a picture. One who will ask the Father, take this cup from me. And he receives the word no, so that you and I, we don't drink a cup of wrath. We drink a cup of blessing. This is the sinner's song of salvation. Let's pray to that end.
Our God and our Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks because we need your word like we have here to tell us that sin is not good. And we don't need to just know that as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever. We need to know that as believers in Christ, that sin is not good. And you in great mercy will get our attention to show us what we have in Christ. We have new life. We have new passions, new desires. And so when we have forgotten you, in great mercy, you get our attention to say, it is my favor that offers you strength, firmness, a foundation. Look to me for life. We thank you for this table for that very reason. And we would make it our prayer, even this night, if there are those among us who cannot say we have sang such a song because we have not seen such a Savior. Would they do that? Would they see Christ Jesus, the Son of God, slain for us that what we receive is life and life eternal? And all for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen.